Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 158. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 20 through 23 and follow with some thoughts about the tragedy of the commons. Psalm 20 looks to the king and to his well-being. Quote, May the Lord answer you on the day of distress. After all, hearken back to all those grain and burnt offerings. It's only fair that, quote, May he grant you what your heart would want, and all of your counsels may he fulfill. We know the poet is thinking about the king because he says as much. Quote, Now do I know that the Lord has rescued his anointed. And as for the king and the poet's enemies, quote, They have tumbled and fallen but we arose and took heart. As for Psalm 21, the king gets everything he wanted. Quote, you met him with blessings of bounty. You set on his head a crown of pure gold. Life, he asked you. You gave him length of days for time without end. And one cannot trumpet the king without a shout out to the king's benefactor. Quote, loom high, O Lord. In your strength, let us sing, let us hymn your might. Psalm 22 shifts gears dramatically, quote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my rescue are the words that I roar. My God, I call out by day, and you do not answer. By night, no stillness for me. The poet's despair is evocative, quote, But I am a worm and no man, a disgrace among men, by the people reviled. All who see me do mock me. They curl their lips, they shake their head. But the poet is hopeful. History has shown him that, quote, In you did our fathers trust, they trusted, and you set them free. Also, experience has shown him that, quote, You drew me out from the womb, made me safe at my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. From my mother's belly you were my god. And when the outlook seems bleak... Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's John C. And when rescue comes, the poet gives proper credit. Quote, let me tell your name to my brothers. In the assembly, let me praise you. Fearers of the Lord, oh, praise him. All the seed of Jacob, revere him and be afraid of him. All Israel's seed. Psalm 23 is famous for its imagery and its message of courage and thanks. Quote, a David psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows, he made me lie down. By quiet waters, guides me. My life he brings back. He leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. It is they that console me. You set out a table before me in the face of my foes. You moisten my head with oil, my cup overflows. Let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. And on that hopeful note, here endeth the lesson. Imagine a green meadow, kind of like the one in which the poet imagines the Lord made him lie down. Imagine the quiet waters. The power of Psalm 23 comes from these concrete images. Now, imagine the meadow is a common parcel of land. It's a place where all the shepherds bring their flocks to graze. This was the custom 
in English villages going back centuries before economist William Foster Lloyd published a pamphlet in 1833. In this pamphlet, Lloyd imagines what would happen if one of those hypothetical shepherds or cattle herders put more than his allotted number of cattle or on sheep or whatever on the common. It would set off a chain of events, beginning arguably with a second shepherd who'd say, well, if uh, Mr. First is grazing more than he's allowed and his uh, sheep are getting fat, I'd be a sucker to let my sheep lose out because of that guy. So I'll bring more of my sheep to graze longer and get fatter too. So for now, the first and second shepherd individually receive additional benefits. They got fattened sheep. But what happens when the third shepherd acts in kind? Or the fourth or the fifth? Because y'all know they will because arguably it's the rational economic decision to make. So the race is on to see who's going to bring their extra sheep to the meadow the fastest and have them graze the longest. The inevitable result is the collapse of the tacit agreement between the shepherds, dramatic overgrazing of the meadow, and its inevitable destruction. So now no one can graze their sheep there. Game over. This problem is commonly known as the tragedy of the commons, and in a sense, resolving this tragedy is the essence of political philosophy. How you fix this problem speaks volumes about how you envision society and the role of government in that society. Do you leave government out of it altogether and let the locals figure it out? Do you privatize the commons? Do you regulate the commons with a system of permits? Or do you make the users internalize the externalities and pay for all the consequences of using that common? A modern-day equivalent of internalizing the externalities would be like slapping a tax on gasoline to cover the cost of road maintenance and air pollution and, well, you know, climate change. We could really just get right into the weeds about this, especially now that internalizing the externalities seems to be the progressive solution to many problems facing late capitalist developed societies on the brink of collapse. And perhaps the tangent I wanted to explore isn't that much of a tangent and as we'll probably end up in the same place back in the meadow. So anyway, so I mentioned William Foster Lloyd's pamphlet on the tragedy of the commons and this social dilemma was explored in greater depth by ecologist Garrett Hardin in a 1968 article that he published in the journal Science. I've attached a link to the article in the show notes. He argued that the ecosystem is our common, and by letting people have as many kids as they want, they were overgrazing and thus degrading our environment. In other words, uncontrolled population growth would destroy the planet. Hardin wasn't the first to argue that birth rates would doom us all. Thomas Malthus said as much in 1798. Hardin, however, argued that we can't trust the common will survive because of the conscience of all the shepherds, or in this case, all the breeding humans. So, you know, whether it's a rational economic argument or simple selfishness, when it comes to the commons, the free rider will often elbow out the altruists. So he and an ever-increasing larger list of uh, planet-loving environmentalists have argued that governments, and maybe even the UN, must violate the reproductive rights of individuals in order to guarantee the future of the planet. But what these supposed green Malthusians, who are so protective of the meadow, have overlooked is that, well, 
smaller family size is the global norm. If you actually check, the global average today is around 2.5 children per family, which is down from 5 in the 1960s, and yet the total population of the planet is nonetheless increasing. Why is that? Well, this is what demographers call population momentum. When your population consists of a high proportion of people who are in childbearing years, even if they individually have less kids, there are more of them having kids, so it adds to the overall population. And the thing you also have to consider is that the countries that are very often the targets of these policies are, you guessed it, primarily in the developing world. And even if we get their numbers down, how are their babies that they're having or the babies they're not having responsible for climate change. It's the developed world that historically pumped CO2 into the atmosphere and continues to do so at a breakneck pace. So isn't it convenient to shift the burden of fixing this to the global south? And inevitably, when you're talking about babies, you're really talking about women's bodies. And you know, what could go wrong with policing women's bodies on a global scale? Blessed be the fruit. And finally, focusing on individual family size or individual consumption really distracts us from the real culprits responsible for climate degradation. It's industrial and commercial consumption and the capitalist system that drives it. But heaven forfend, we talk about capitalism unless it's to say that capitalism is just the best. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. All of which is to say that perhaps Psalm 23 does have a solution for us and a better way to manage the commons. It's in the next verse, after the laying down in the quiet waters, quote, My life he brings back, he leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. We've talked an awful lot about justice in the many episodes of late. We did it in episode 156 and how justice ties into fairness. What would be the just and fair thing to do with the common? How do we make sure that we preserve the meadow or our environment and protect it from degradation and ruin? Privatize it, you say? Mr. Shapiro, if you only knew how ridiculous that statement is, you wouldn't have said it. We also can't look to government to coerce us into behaving because the government, like the law it promulgates, is very often an ass. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. So what's left? We must reaffirm our commitment to justice on an individual level, but that commitment is meaningless unless it's tied to collective action. So if we go back to the meadow, when the first shepherd decides to bring more sheep than he's permitted, it's incumbent on the rest not to respond in kind, even though it's the rational, economic, or selfish thing to do, but to kindly speak to the first shepherd and remind him of what everyone agreed to do, as well as speak to the sustainability of the meadow from which all benefit. And I think this is key. The agreement isn't based on enshrining one person's affluence or another's, or whatever, settler colonialism. It's about sustainability for everyone's benefit. Whose benefit? Everyone! This is the very definition of a good norm. But it should also be subject to review, not by a maverick shepherd looking for a quick turnaround, but by the group in a moment of deliberation. And having done it one way for a while is no argument to keep doing it that way. Maybe conditions in the meadow have changed. Maybe the sheep need a little bit more this season. 
we can be flexible, but we adhere to the pathway of justice and fairness. And of course, if after all this, the first shepherd does not heed the words of the group and does not abide by the agreement, well then... Dracaris. If you like what we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 159, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 24 through 27.